Well, again, happy Mother's Day. I want to um, take a moment with you and just share some things I found this week I thought you might be interested in. I know mothers in particular will really appreciate what I'm about to share with you, but I I read about uh, some myths of motherhood. Now, I'm not a mom, never been a mom, and I don't plan on being a mom, and I never will be a mom. I thought I'd share with you some myths of motherhood. So moms, you tell me if these are myths or if they're truths. Uh, Someone has said that a child is carried in his mother's womb for nine months. Somebody does not know that a child is carried in his mother's heart forever. Somebody said it takes six weeks to get back to normal after you've had a baby. Somebody doesn't know that once you're a mother, normal is history. (laughs) Somebody said you learn how to be a mother by instinct. Well, somebody never took a three-year-old shopping. Somebody said that being a mother is boring. Well, somebody never rode in a car driven by a teenager with a driver's permit. (laughs) Today, we do want to take the time to appreciate our moms. Uh, They more than deserve it. They are the unsung, unsung, unseen heroes. I think they have one of the toughest, most thankless, and difficult jobs there is. In fact, if you don't believe me, I want you to hear this job description that I found. And you tell me again, Mom, if this is apropos to where you're at or not. Position, title, mother, mom, mama. Job description, long-term team players needed for challenging permanent work and often chaotic environment. Candidates must possess excellent communication and organizational skills and be willing to work variable hours, which will include evenings, weekends, and frequent 24-hour shifts on call. Some overnight travel required, including trips to primitive camping sites on rainy weekends and endless sports tournaments in faraway cities. Travel expenses, not reimbursed. Reimbursed. Where's I at? There we go. Extensive courier duties also required. Responsibilities the rest of your life. Must be built willing to be hated for at least uh, a moment or temporarily until someone needs $5 or more. (laughs) Must be willing to bite tongue repeatedly. Also must possess physical stamina of a pack mule and be able to go from 0 to 60 in 3 seconds flat. In case this time the screams from the backyard are not someone just crying wolf. (laughs) Must be willing to face stimulating uh, technical challenges, as well as uh, small gadget repair, mysteriously sluggish toilets, stuck zippers. Must screen phone calls, maintain calendars, and coordinate production of multiple homework projects. Must have the ability to plan and organize social gatherings for clients of all ages and mental outlooks. Must be willing to be indispensable one minute in an embarrassment the next. <laughs> Must be able to handle assembly and uh, handle an assembly product safety testing for at least half a million cheap plastic toys and battery-operated devices. Must always hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Must assure final, complete accountability for the quality of the end product. Responsibilities also include floor maintenance and janitorial work throughout the facility. Possibility for advancement and promotion, virtually none. Is to remain the same uh, in the same position for years without complaining, constantly retraining and updating your skills so that your charge can ultimately surpass you. Previous experience, none required. 
On-the-job training offered on a continually exhausting basis. <laughs> Wages in compensation, get this, you pay them. <laughs> Offering frequent raises and bonuses. A balloon payment is due at the end of 18 years on the assumption that college will help them become financially independent. <laughs> and when you die, you give them rest of whatever is left over. And the oddest thing of this reverse salary scheme is that you actually enjoy it and you wish that you could only do more. Benefits. While there are no health or dental insurance, no pension, no tuition, no reimbursement, no paid holidays, no stock options offered, this job supplies limitless opportunities for personal growth and free hugs for life. <laughs> does that sound familiar, moms? I think it does. This morning, I want to look at a passage in Scripture that uh, tells the story of a mom that I believe is, in my estimation, an unsung hero of unseen greatness. I want us to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at the entire chapter of a woman that many of us have heard her name, perhaps are familiar with her story, but I want to take a moment this morning and unpack her story and look more closely, not just at her story, but the character of the woman in whom God used in a great way. She is, I believe, an unsung hero with unseen greatness. Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel begins, Now there was a certain man from Ramath Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so that she wept and would not eat. Then Helkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Now listen, he knew why, didn't he? He knew exactly why. Am I not better than ten sons? I wonder about this, Elkanah. <laughs> then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, and remember me, and not forget your maidservant. But I will give your maidservant a son. But give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to you, to the Lord, all the days of his life. And a razor shall not come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. 
Only her lips were moving. Her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am not a woman oppressed. I am a woman who is oppressed in spirit. I have, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken, I have, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relationships with Hannah, relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked of him from the Lord. Then the man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull, one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood before or beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And they worshipped the Lord there. This chapter finds itself in a time of Israel's history that was rooted in conflict and chaos and tremendous uncertainty. This was a time in which there was very little godly leadership. The government was often corrupt. The priesthood was incredibly defiled. It mentions in verse 3 the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas both of which were ostensibly wicked men. It says in chapter 2, verse 12, that they were worthless men. The word there is belial, meaning that they were literally sons of the devil. They were greedy, they were uh, immoral, they were wicked, worthless men. The priesthood, in other words, was incredibly defiled. It says that the people, in chapter 3, verse 1, seldom heard from the Lord. It was as though God was silent and seemed distant and aloof. Lawlessness was rampant. The future of the nation of Israel was uncertain. In fact, in Judges it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Proverbs says this, When the righteous increase, 
the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. In other words, the nation of Israel was groaning much like our nation is today. When we have wicked leadership, the whole nation groans. And Israel was groaning during this time. But God was neither silent nor distant. His focus was on a a woman that was relatively obscure. Nobody would have given her any notice or any thought. Her name was Hannah, which means a woman of grace. And her greatness was virtually unrecognized by others and would have remained so for many years. And that's the way greatness often works. But there is a time in which greatness eventually is unveiled. It was through this obscure, unseen, unsung hero that God was about to literally change a nation. Now, what I want us to see in this passage, and this is a message for moms, what I want us to see in this passage is that the kind of greatness that God uses, that he leverages in a person's life that has a way of impacting countless lives around you. Moms, this message really is for you. There are three Areas of greatness that I see in Hannah's life that I want to share with you this morning. She was a woman of great faith, a woman of great prayer, and a woman of great sacrifice. Interesting how great faith often reveals itself in times of great crisis. And Hannah lived in a home that was painfully divided, as well as a nation that was painfully divided. Her husband... Elkanah, who was a Levite, he was of the priesthood, took on a second wife named Panina, which means, ironically, ruby. Turns out she was far from being a precious gem. She was more like a cold, hard rock. Now, the question would naturally occur to us, why did Elkanah have two wives? Where does God condone polygamy anywhere in the Bible? He doesn't. In fact, Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said that the original design for creation is that God created one man for one woman to become one flesh. Polygamy is nowhere ever condoned in Scripture. But it seems that Elkanah married Hannah first. And as time went on, she proved to be barren, unable to have children. And in that culture, when you had no children, not only was it scorn and shame for the woman, but it was an embarrassment for the husband. And so it appears that he decided, like Abraham, following the very footsteps of his ancestor, he would take on a second wife. And he took on this wonderful gem of a woman, Penina. <laughs> Uh, let me just tell you something that you don't need to be told, but you know already. Guys, uh, it doesn't pay to marry more than one wife. Uh, it, it is always trouble. Always. Uh, you can see it throughout Scripture. Abraham's home life was fairly good when it was just Abraham and Sarah, but then when he brought Hagar along, suddenly everything was topsy-turvy. In fact, Abraham ended up having three wives. 
Jacob had at least four wives. David had at least eight wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The one who suffered the most out of all these was the wisest and yet foolish man of all was Solomon. <laughs> you see, when Miss Coldstone Panina came along, she was a slap in the face of Hannah causing almost immediate tension and, and division in the home. You see, twice in these verses, it says that Hannah was unable to conceive because God kept her from doing so, verses 5 and verse 6. And it was not a fact that Panina uh, went unnoticed by Panina. Every opportunity she had, she rubbed it in the face of Hannah like, like salt in an open wound. It says in verses 6 and 7, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly, irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. Isn't that the way with some people? To use what they think is misfortune from God's hand and rub it in your face. Well, this proved when Penina had children that the problem was not Elkanah, but in fact, Hannah. Barrenness for a woman was an, was an incredibly shameful and difficult personal and public shame to bear. And though she probably did not feel like it or even recognize it, Hannah nonetheless stood in line with a number of other great women of faith before her. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all of which were barren for a season of time. God prevented them from having children. And so Hannah stood in the same line of that same greatness. And year after year, as Penina continued to have children, she would rub it in the face of Hannah, who year after year continued not to be able to bear any children at all. Now here's where I want you to see what is happening. Nowhere in this passage, listen carefully, nowhere in this passage do you ever see Hannah retaliating. Instead, what we see is a quiet, persistent faith. While Panina continued to have children year after year, it never says once, not once, as she was provoked, as she was being irritated, never once does she say, okay, Miss Coldstone, I've had enough. Not once does she ever say that. Instead, what we see in her is a quiet and strong, persistent faith. But there's something else I want you to see here as well. Nowhere does she ever say, God, why? Nowhere does she rail against God. Why are you doing this to me, God? After all, God clearly was the one preventing her from children, having children, and she knew that. Instead, she took her sorrow to God. Wow. That is so instructive for not just our moms, but for us as well. When we bear the great sorrows of life, and we don't understand why, rather than railing against others or against God, but to take those sorrows to God. And what we see in Hannah is a woman of tremendous faith. Great faith, wrote one man, is not the faith that always walks in the light and knows no darkness, but the faith that perseveres in spite of God's seeming silence. Dwight L. Moody said that real faith is man's, or in this case, woman's weaknesses leaning on God's strength. And Hannah's strength was her persistent faith. She never gave up. Now, I think 
It is natural for us as we read a passage like this to begin to wonder, why did God treat Hannah this way? Did he have a secret vendetta against her? Sometimes we feel like God does, don't we? When things don't go the way we expect or the way we want in our life. But what we see in Hannah's life, as well as the life of many great men and women before her, is that God allowed this crisis, listen carefully, God allowed this crisis in her life to show Hannah her great need for God. God was preparing her for the kind of faith that she would have to have, she would need as a mother in the years to come. You see, in the life of every great saint, there are oftentimes long and dark seasons of struggle and waiting. Don't miss that fact. When you walk through Scripture, it's almost as though the names are endless when you look at the men and women of great saints and great faith who went through incredible difficulties. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, David, Esther, Mary, Paul, and on and on the list goes. Every single one had gone through dark days of trials and difficulty that God allowed them to go through. Why? Because God had a vendetta against them? No, but because God was deepening their faith in them to trust in Him no matter what. And that is exactly what God is doing in Hannah's life here. You see, motherhood is oftentimes shrouded with seemingly endless days of endless duties and seemingly endless struggles. And what moms may not realize that despite all this, our children, your children, are watching you. They're watching you and how you live out your faith. They're not just listening. They're watching the conduct of your faith. And they're assessing if your faith is real or it is not. And I want to encourage you, moms, you may not realize it. It may not seem this way to you, but your children are watching you. And your faith has a far more powerful impact on your children than you think. Never underestimate the power of persistent faith. I love this story about four scholars who were once arguing over Bible translations. Uh, one said that he preferred the King James Version because it was beautiful, it's eloquent, flowing English. Another said that he preferred the American Standard for its literalism, the way it moves the reader from passage to passage with confident feelings of accuracy and uh, from the original text. A third man said, well, I prefer the Charles Moffat translation in particular because of its quaint, penetrating use of words, turn of a phrase that captures the reader's attention. After giving the issue some thought, a fourth scholar admitted, you know, he said, I personally preferred my mother's translation. The other scholars chuckled, and he went on, yes, he said, he said, she translated it. She translated each passage of the Bible into life. It was the most convincing translation I ever saw. <laughs> no pressures, Mom. Uh, but the sincerity and the persistence of your faith is the best translation your children will ever see. What we see in Hannah's life first is a life of great faith despite great obstacles. Second is great prayer. Hannah was a woman of tremendous prayer. 
In fact, on one occasion, while she accompanied Elkanah, her husband, and his Coldstone antagonist wife, Panina, to the yearly festival in Shiloh, while they were there at the tabernacle, and they were taking part in all the festivities that were required of the Jewish families, Hannah quietly slipped away from the crowd. And she went to the tabernacle, probably a building adjacent to the tabernacle, close by, not the tabernacle itself. And there she poured her soul out before the Lord. She, greatly distressed, it says, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and forget not your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give to the Lord all the days of his life. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come on his head. Now, when she prayed these words, she didn't pray them out loud. They were not heard. It says, in fact, that she spoke them in her heart. And all that was visibly apparent was her lips that were moving as she was praying this prayer. And while she was doing so, it seems that Eli, this old, doddering, permissive priest, was sitting next to the tabernacle, and he happened to look over, and he saw this woman in great distress, not knowing that, and seeing nothing move but her lips as she was leaning against the building. Now, he had the discernment of a rock. He did not recognize this was a woman who was literally pouring her soul out, but in fact, he thought she was drunk. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine, it says in verse 14. <laughs> what a fool. Instead of accusing her, he should have taken the time and asked the question, what is troubling you? I don't think it would have been long at all to figure out very quickly. This was not a woman who was intoxicated with wine, but one, in fact, who was intoxicated with grief. He jumped to the wrong conclusions. It's kind of interesting. When you look at Hannah's life, this was not unusual for her. Her husband jumped to the wrong conclusion about her and said, you know, you're not really fit to be my wife. I need another one. Panina. Jumped to conclusion and said, well, what are you? I can have children, you can't. And now you have the priest who is misjudging her as though she is an intoxicated, worthless woman. And nor does he understand. It seems that every turn of the way, someone is against Hannah. Moms, do you feel that way at times? Misunderstood by your children? Misunderstood by your husband? Misunderstood by the world around you? And you feel like you want to give up? And you wonder why, why, why? And God says, because I'm working inside of you. I'm working in you to be a woman of great faith and a woman of great prayer. But do you recognize that? Do you recognize that? 
Don't be surprised if everyone is against you. No one understands you. The point of all this happening is not that they're doing this or that this is even happening. The point of all this is that God is working in you. And God wants to do a tremendous work in your life. But it's here when Hannah is pouring out, literally pouring her soul out before the Lord, it says in verse 15, that as she pours her soul out to the Lord and Eli confronts her, she clarifies the matter. She tells him, I'm not drunk. I'm not a worthless woman. I've been pouring my soul out to God in distress. But it's here where we see Hannah's faith that reveals something that has been stirring in her heart. Not at the moment she came to the tabernacle, but something that had been stirring in her heart for months and years. A prayer. But not just a prayer. A prayer that I get the sense of as you watch and you listen. A prayer that changed, that morphed as it intensified the prayer changed itself. Have you ever prayed one way and God doesn't answer and you're so compelled in your heart that God, please hear me, please answer, and you intensify your prayers, but you notice as you continue to pray, your prayer changes. I get the sense that Hannah's prayer began to change over time. And it changed to a place where she finally came to the place she said, God, if you'll give me a son, oh God, if you'll give me a son, I will give him completely to you. I'll give him completely to you. It's here that God finally answers her prayer. You see, what makes her prayer so great is her great humility. It's interesting when you read this text, you'll find that she calls herself a maidservant, not just once or twice, but five times in these verses, three times in her prayer to God and two times to Eli the priest. This same language mirrors another great woman of history. It mirrors Mary, the mother of the Messiah. That when Gabriel came to her and said, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah, what was her response? But it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she said, I am the Lord's maidservant. I'm the Lord's bondservant. Do with me as you will. What we see in Hannah that makes her prayer so great is this tremendous Humility. You see, God does one of three, if possibly four things with our prayers. He either says yes, no, wait, or maybe. And it seems in this situation that God was saying wait. Year in and year out, as she came before the Lord and poured out her heart to the Lord, God said wait, wait, not yet. But finally, when she came to the place where her prayer took on such an intensity that it began to change, and she said, God, if you'll give me a child, I'm asking, and I've been asking for years, but God, if you'll give me a child, I, I'll give him completely to you. It's as though God had been waiting just for that. 
She wanted a son for herself as a mother. She wanted a son to give to her husband to, to rid her of his shame and the embarrassment of her husband. But God wanted something greater. God wanted a prophet to give to the nation. God wanted to change the nation, not just give her a son. And God was waiting for her to pray with a heart and a soul that said, God, here I am. Please give me the son. And when, when you do, I will give him completely to you. Your will be done, whatever that may be. I don't wonder if God desires exactly that from us in our own prayers. A great humility that recognizes prayer is not me trying to sway God to do my will, but rather prayer is my will bending to God's will. Little did Hannah recognize that the very future of the nation of Israel would be significantly impacted by this one unsung, unseen hero of prayer. I believe the same is true today. Moms, do you pray for your children? I know you do. I didn't need to ask that. But you see, I believe that God is still using a mom's prayers today in far more powerful ways than we know. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon who said this, I cannot tell how much I owe the prayers of my good mother. Theodore Roosevelt said this, he said, Theodore Roosevelt said, praying mothers are America's greatest assets. Hmm. Many people are familiar with John Wesley and Charles Wesley. John Wesley preached literally to thousands, saw thousands of people come to Christ. Charles Wesley will still sing his songs today, the great hymns that he wrote. But Susanna Wesley, that unsung, unsung, unseen hero, their mother had more than two children. She had 17 children. And it is said that Susanna Wesley would dedicate an hour a day in her busy schedule of raising 17 children, one hour a day, she would pray for her children. She would take one hour a week with each child and instruct them in the spiritual matters of Christ. She invested, invested into their lives. And it was because of the great faith of this mom these two men, just these two men, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, literally impacted and shaped two of the greatest nations on the face of the earth, Great Britain and America. And yet who would ever say, what made Great Britain great? What made America great? We would say, well, it was George Washington. And we would maybe list a number of names. And God would say, no. Not at all. It was the praying mothers behind the scenes that no one knew but me. She was not only a woman of great faith, but a woman of great prayer. And finally, she was a woman of great sacrifice. It says in verse 19 that when... Eli had told her that, Go in peace, may the Lord answer your quests. The very next day it says that 
Elkanah packed up his family, and they returned home. Not long after they returned home, Hannah discovers, in fact, that God answers her prayer, and she has a baby boy. And she names him Samuel, which means heard of God, which is significant in a couple of ways. One, because Samuel was a tremendous answer to prayer, but he was also a tremendous man of prayer throughout his life. But what we see here is great sacrifice. Now, moms, I want you to think about this just for a moment, and this isn't just for moms, but dads as well. Hannah knew sooner or later she was going to have to tell her husband Oh, by the way, you know, the reason I'm having a son is because God answered my prayer. And you know what? I made a vow. I made a vow that when when God would give me this son, I would give him to the Lord permanently at the tabernacle. In other words, Elkanah, this son is not going to be yours to raise. Though he is your firstborn son from me, you can't raise him. You will have only a little bit of time in his life but we're going to have to give him up completely to the Lord. Now, Elkanah, according to Mosaic law, had the right to cancel her vow. Numbers chapter 30, verse 8. And this says a great deal about Elkanah's faith in God as well as his faith in his wife. And he tells her, okay, if that's what it's going to be, that's what it's going to be. So for three short years... Hannah raises little Samuel. And you can bet she did not waste a moment of time of that precious, those precious three years she had. She invested everything she could to prepare her son to serve the Lord. Sometimes we think that our children really are not that um, uh, important to really hear or learn or understand what we want to invest in them until they're maybe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age. But did you know that the development of a child's brain, the foundation of who they're going to become, is largely determined by the third year of their life? They are watching, they're listening, they're absorbing like a sponge, and as they do so, they're forming who they're going to be, much of who they're going to be in the days to come. And you can bet that Hannah invested every moment of her time in that child's life. And the day finally came. Three very short years later, Hannah scooped up little Samuel in her arms, and she took him to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, your soul lives, my Lord. I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And it says there that they worship the Lord. There is nothing short of a tremendous step of faith and sacrifice on both Hannah's part and Elkanah's in this incredible move of giving their child up. Could you imagine, just for a moment, giving your child up, leaving your child with this permissive old doddering priest who had two sons that were literally hellions? His own track record as a father had been horrible. Not to mention, not to mention, 
Eli himself now shouldered with raising a three-year-old child for the rest of his elderly days. Nothing is said about that. But can you imagine moms taking that three-year-old precious child of yours and putting them into the hands of this man? He's barely learned how to speak. He only stopped wearing diapers a short while ago. Eli is thankful for that. <laughs> He's barely learning to control his emotions. He's just come out of the terrible twos and now he's into the threes. <laughs> and yet Hannah says, here he is. I get the sense that Hannah was probably very familiar with the history of her nation and those who had walked in great faith before her. And I wonder if she prayed for Samuel that she would that God would keep him just like he did Joseph safe and pure all those years in Egypt without a mom's watchful eye to guide and protect and so the same faith is the faith that Hannah exercised in giving up her son you see here's the point is that the same faith that that, that Hannah had in receiving Samuel is the same faith as she had in giving her son up. Hannah did not invest three years into this child's life to hold her to herself, to keep him for herself, but rather she raised him to release him. Boy, parents, I hope that you can really hear what I'm saying. There have been punctuated moments of great stress, great fear, great uncertainty. I speak as a father. In my own children's lives, where I was reminded very clearly this child is not my own, but ultimately belongs to the Lord. And it was in those moments where I realized that I have not been given this child to keep, to possess for myself. Though I have to tell you as a dad, and maybe I'm a little different, but I can tell you as a dad, I didn't want our girls to grow up and leave. I wanted to tell them, you can stay here as long, I don't care. You can stay here as long as you want. This is always home for you. Dad is always dad for you. Mom is always mom for you. We recognized a long time ago that our children are not ours to keep. But God has given them to us as a stewardship to raise them, to release them. Not to become dependent upon us, but to learn to become dependent upon the Lord. And it seems that Hannah had done her job well. I think it is fair to say that what in great part allowed Samuel to become the great man of God he was because he had a mom of great faith and great prayer and great sacrifice. Samuel would become Israel's greatest judge, one of the most powerful priests she'd ever have. 
and the final judge. Samuel would be the one who would anoint the first two kings of the nation of Israel, the second of which being the greatest of them all. Why? Because Samuel had a mom. A mom in the shadows of his life for years and years and years. As Samuel grew and matured and God began to use him and elevate him, Hannah was in the background praying that unsung, unseen hero of Samuel's life. She was the picture of unseen greatness. Hannah's story poignantly reminds us that moms have a tremendous influence on the life and the future of the nation through her children. Why? Because God is looking for from you those things of greatness, a great faith and a great prayer and great sacrifice. Moms, you may feel like you don't really matter. And I know from being a husband, being a son, being a father, that as I watch my wife and I've watched my own mother, I think there are days and times that you may feel that your job doesn't matter. You may feel that you don't matter. You may feel that no one notices. You may feel that God does not even seem to care. But I want you to know two things this morning. You matter. You matter to God. God hears your prayers. God hears your faith. God knows your sacrifice. Not only does God care, but we care. I'm thankful for Mother's Day because these are times that are needed for moms to be reminded. You really matter. You matter far more than you have any idea. And I'm thankful to God for you. I want to close our time today doing something perhaps a little different. But maybe our moms can't do this. Maybe they can. But I just want to take a moment. Would our moms, if you can, would you just stand where you're at right now? Just stand where you're at, moms. And Danny said it so well. Maybe you're not a biological mom. Maybe you're a spiritual mom. Many of you are. Many of you are moms to children that are not yours. Thank you for being that. Would you give our moms that are standing a hand of appreciation this morning? Thank you. You may be seated. So moms, I pray the rest of your day is a day of blessing to you. And as you leave from here today, please don't forget. Though you may feel obscure and the rest of life may be rushing by, filling all the voids with busyness and activity, and you may feel forgotten, set on the sidelines of life, you matter. Your faith matters. Your prayers still matter. And your sacrifice matters. Will you pray with me?